0: Thank you, Pastor Nathan. It's good to see you, church, on this Sunday evening. I'm glad that you're here. I am excited for tonight. I'm glad that we can fellowship and get together and open the word uh, as we as we always do on Sunday evening. So I invite you, hopefully you're still there, the book of Malachi, chapter number four. We have been traversing through this little book of prophecy, and we are here. We arrived at the final chapter, not only of this prophecy, but uh, the final chapter of The Old Testament, the canon of the Old Testament, which I think is something worth noting. Uh, Of course, throughout this book of Malachi, as we've been pointing out, the prophet here is on sort of a diatribe. He's sort of uh, giving serious language to the priests and the people of God for the ways in which they have really failed uh, in their ways in which they've handled the word of God. The liturgy that was supposed to go on in God's house. And he's pointed that out over and over again. Uh, in chapter number 1 it begins with this ways and all the ways in which they've failed. Chapter 2 continues that of course. And uh, he's been pointing out that these people who are given so much privilege, so much responsibility have really fumbled that Responsibility of handling God's word and ministering God's word to God's people. And I think it's fascinating, at least to me, uh, how this chapter ends. Look again at verse number 5 of chapter 4 of Malachi. The prophet declares, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Kind of a sour note on which to end this amazing revelation of God's work in God's people. For 38 odd uh, books... This has been, uh, we've been hearing and, and learning about the story of God's people. 38 books of God's revelation throughout this Old Testament. And here we come to the last one. This one that sort of closes this particular volume of God's work with God's people in the world. The ways, showing the ways in which he intervenes on behalf of his people. And yet... It ends with this 39th book, the very last verse of the very last chapter of this very last book of the Old Testament, ends with sort of a thud, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Sort of a a gloomy close to the ways in which God has been working all of those thousands of years of history. Just kind of set your mind and think back all of, all the way back from Eden to exile and then back again. God has been working through his people, working on behalf of his people. All of those years in which he's promised Redemption, and they've rebelled against that word, and then they have a revival, and then they rebel again, and, then, and and on and on this cycle goes, this cycle of history, and here we come to this sort of anticlimactic end, <laughs> lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. It's sort of a blunt reminder, at least in my mind, showing exactly, I think, what God's people had sort of chosen, this curse. Or the sort of threatening of the curse is sort of uh, something that they, God's people, have chosen. Because, uh, as we've been going through in our series on the books of Kings, uh, they have chosen to uh, mix their allegiances. As we've seen, God's people were given strict ordinances on things they were supposed to avoid and things they were supposed to cling to. And yet, throughout all of those workings of God's people... They chose to mix their allegiance, not just to Yahweh, but to other lesser gods. And we don't necessarily need to belabor all of that history. We uh, are familiar with it, or you can just read the books of Kings. You'll see uh, over and over again, God's people choosing something beneath them. And yet, I think the, the, the sort of ending notes of all of this history comes here. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is drastically far away from where God wanted to bring his people. It began with, as we heard about this morning from Brother, Brother uh, Hanschick, with that promise to Abraham. And what he was wanting to do through his people, which was to bless the nations. They were meant to be the vessels of God's blessings to all of the people surrounding them. Sort of a channel of God's grace. That's what the people of God were meant to be. And yet, if you just read this history, read these books of the Old Testament, you'll see all of the ways in which God's people had grown to sort of Snub and, and slight, and even spit upon that blessing. So, this sort of thud of an ending is not very surprising. This is sort of the ending they chose. This is sort of the ending that was always coming, that if God's people turned their backs on them, there would be a, a price to pay. Their rebellion wouldn't just go unnoticed. And that's kind of an off putting. Sort of disconcerting notion, but it is exactly what Malachi here aims to explain. This price to pay for rebellion and rejection of the Lord of all things. What is that price? Well, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch.'" Here, not just here, but uh, especially in the books of the minor prophets, uh, but here, especially in verse or in chapter four, what the prophet is describing is this future day, a future day of judgment. And here he uses very vivid language about this fire, this coming day of fire that will burn up and consume all, as he says, the proud like stubble. It's sort of a continuation. What he began in just a few verses back in chapter number three, if you'll notice in verse 15 of chapter three, he says, And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Even here, he's talking about, as he says, a day. A day in which this will come about. A day which, as he continues in verse number 17, "...and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day, when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, and as a man spareth his own son that serveth him, then shall ye return." And discern between the righteous and the wicked between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. It's this day of judgment, this day of discerning, this day of dividing and as we pointed out last week, this day of dividing into two categories the only two that matter, faith and unfaith those that believe in the promise of deliverance through God's only son and those who do not. So that's the only thing that distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked and here it's Important to note who's doing the discerning is the Lord of hosts himself. And of course all of this is a reference as this shorthand of that day or the day of the Lord. That's what he's referring to. The day of the Lord, the end of days, judgment day we can call it, doomsday. The end of all things. The end of days. All of those are the same sorts of day that the prophets allude to. That the minor prophets especially have in their minds. It's that day when the Lord himself. It's going to come back for the second time. Coming back not as an infant. But coming back as a warrior. And he's going to come back and establish. His kingdom of holiness and righteousness. On this earth. And here as Malachi says. That day is going to be accompanied. By this great scalding fire. As he says here. That's going to burn up the proud. Like stubble. (laughs) All of those who are. Too proud, too full of themselves to bow before this awesome king, this lord of hosts. They are the ones who are going to be snuffed out. And I think, again, it's significant. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Kings, but I think it's interesting here. Again, that the first among the list of those to be judged, the proud. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, to be burned up in the blink of an eye. And I think this is indicative of what God hates most. As he says in Proverbs, as he says throughout all of the other books, as he points out, what he abhors is this idea that the creatures that he spoke into existence are no longer in need of His influence, his favor, his intervention. He's revulsed by that notion that we don't need him. That's sort of the essence of pride. This idea that I can be my own God, I can be my own sovereign, I can be my own deliverer. And those who are living in such a way, they are the ones who God here is calling out through his prophet Malachi. That they are the ones who are putting themselves in harm's way. And such is how the proud live. They live as though they don't need him. Again, notice verse 15 of chapter 3. And now we call the proud happy. And yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Again, notice he's referring both again to those same two classes of those who are set up to be judged, the proud and the wicked. Yea, they that tempt to God are even delivered. There's this reversal of what is expected here by these who were supposedly supposed to uphold the purity and authority of God's word as we pointed out last week that now the proud and the wicked they are the ones being exalted they are the ones being looked to here they these proud and the wicked they don't have any any sort of uh, interest in God's word. They don't have any sort of inclination to follow it or make it a part of their lives. In fact, they live according to their own wit, their own wisdom. They, they set their own bearings. They, and for a while, again, as it's, it's sort of suggested here, they, they're living quite well. They're seen as happy. They're seen as the ones who have everything put together. They're set up. They're exalted as the examples. Look at how life is lived best. I can't help but think of verse number 15 of chapter 3 without thinking of our own day. Those who are lofted and propped up as the the paragons, the examples of put-togetherness. Celebrities and the like. (laughs) They're the the proud who are called happy. The ones who are, look to, look at at what God is doing. Or look at how well they're living. And yet... (laughs) Notice, I think it's important to notice how Malachi then switches in verse number 1 and 3 of chapter 4. That the very ones who are set up as an example of how to have happiness are the ones who are burned up. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. Them, or saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave neither leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 3, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. And the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. When that day dawns, the day of this mighty Lord's coming, the Lord of hosts, when he arrives... All that appeared sturdy, all that appeared stable, all that appeared well and good, as they say here, happy. It's going to be reduced to stubble. It's going to be exposed as just chaff and straw, the leftovers. Nothing, nothing is even uh, uh, sort of, uh, you, you can't even use this part of, uh, of, of, the, of the stock. It's just, it's just worthless. All of their supposed successes, these proud who are exalted, these wicked, as he says, who are set up, nothing of their successes or nothing of their substance will be able to abide in that day because the Lord and his righteousness, he's not going to even leave, neither root nor branch, is all going to be consumed. All of the trophies of their prideful resistance to God's words and wisdom consumed burnt up with the only thing left being these ashes as he refers to in verse 3 i can't help but think of this particular section and then my mind has gone to matthew chapter 7 where uh, the lord at the end of his sermon on the mount uh, sort of gives his people this example of how to build your life whether you're building your life your house on a rock or building your house on sand here, are clearly, these proud and wicked who are seen as examples of put togetherness. Their houses were built on sand and everything crumbles. There's nothing but ash left. This is the Harsh fates, yes, the fate that is a little bit foreboding, that is a little bit off-putting, it's a little bit disconcerting to hear such strong and forceful words of judgment come from this Lord, and yet this is the fate that is awaiting those who are so prideful that they think they don't need the Lord. It's of judgment that's imminent. And to think again that these words were coming to God's covenant people. The very ones that he had chosen. He had brought out in the exodus and had planted in the the land of promise. And then brought out of exile again to return to this land of promise. Even they needed this message. I think the purpose of all of this, and in fact it 's not just here in Malachi, but if you go through the other minor prophets, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all those other little books at the ends uh, at the end of the New Old Testament, they 're going to refer to the day, that day, the day of the Lord with quite a lot of frequency and I think the reason why they 're doing it is they 're intending to sort of stir up they're, uh, if your fire is dwindling, you take your little poker and you Poke all the coals and you stir up the flames again. You're wanting to revive that fire and make it burn hot again. And indeed, I think such is what the prophets are doing in all of these sections where they're mentioning that day. The coals of faith, if I can use that analogy, have grown very cold in the hearts of God's people. What else could shock them? What else could stir them to faith again, except for the fact that there is a day of judgment that is on the horizon. And here, Malachi seems to indicate that this day is near. It's at hand. God's people had become cozy, casual with the things of the Lord, with the things that God's words requires you remember they were okay with giving all of these sort of less than equitable sacrifices in god's house they were okay with bringing lambs and sacrifices that were lame or sick or malnourished they were okay with giving god less than what his word requires and here then the prophet employs this day of the lord as a warning As a warning to announce them, yes, there is impending disaster for those who don't take these things seriously enough. But yes, there's also a semblance of hope. You see, I think by just using this day of the Lord and this message to God's people, he is getting their attention. I think these types of words of judgment and fire and and these things being reduced to stubble, being reduced to straw that burns up at the snap of a finger. It gets attention because I think that's what God wants. He's not just after his people's heads. He's after their hearts. He's wanting them to turn back to him. You see, that's the wonderful message of this book of Malachi. These four short chapters Are strong with the ways in which they call out God's people. But they're always tinged with this message of hope. It's a prophecy of hope. Hope, yes, even in judgment. It is hope that arises out of this one amazing fact. That the Lord doesn't change. Verse number 6 of chapter 3 as we focused on last week. For I am the Lord, I change not. I'm not affected by the winds and the seasons of change, his disposition towards those that he loves, those that he covenants and promises to rescue doesn't vacillate. It doesn't change on a whim. He's not a God who is fickle with his emotions towards his children. Not even when we fail. Because even this particular chapter, even this entire book is a message of promise. I love verse number 6 of chapter 4 where he says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite them with a curse. Even in the midst of this promise that there is judgment that is coming. He says, There will be a turning. It's the same word you might know. All the way back in chapter number 3 verse number 7 where he says even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them return unto me and I will return unto you. This promise that there is a welcoming embrace waiting for those who turn from their wicked ways and see that the Lord of hosts is also the Lord of mercy who's waiting to receive them. This is this promise of hope that permeates throughout all of these words, throughout all of these messages of judgment and fire, that God doesn't change. He's the God, the very same God (laughs) I'll just read this really quickly. He's the very same God of Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 is a particularly great verse to get at God's heart. 34 verse number 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation this is the same God A God who is merciful and gracious and long-suffering, who is holy, who is committed to his word, committed to his truth. And the same God here, he says, I'm the God who is waiting for you. Return unto me. For I change not. Alexander McLaren, that great preacher, he says on this particular passage, God does not turn from his love nor cancel his promises nor does he alter his purposes of mercy because of our sins. No, he stays faithful to what he promises. Even and especially to such who have failed and fallen. His promises, return, return, repent, Or even here in chapter number 4, verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Within this message of final judgment. That seems unflinching. That seems inescapable. There is in fact a way of escape. There is in fact a way of deliverance. Out of this as he says great and dreadful day. Those who turn and face this Lord of hosts. Yes then even this destruction. This utter destruction of root and branch. Is alleviated by those who return and repent in the face and at the feet of this Lord of hosts. It's that message that then is so explosive in the New Testament. That that at the beginning of the church. Where Peter says to those what shall we do at this message? Repent and believe. And in fact that's the very message of the two messengers that Malachi mentioned. Remember at the beginning of chapter 3. Malachi mentions two messengers that were yet to come. Uh, and when they uh, arrived, you would know that this day and this season of judgment was on the horizon. And in fact, what do they start preaching? Well, Mark chapter 1 is very sort of illustrious on this point. Mark 1 chapter 4 says, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of, note, repentance for the remission of sins. Likewise, in the same chapter, Mark 1 verse 15, and Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel, the good news. The very messengers that Malachi was promising were to come, were coming and preaching the same message. Repent, return, look to the Lord of hosts. The kingdom is at hand. I find so much comfort. In that message, that even within all these sort of terrifying words of fire and flames and stubble, there's this word of grace. This word of grace that is this opportunity. Opportunity for one and to all to turn their hearts back to this Lord of all things. And when they do, there is a ready, welcome waiting for them. They will find that they have turned to the Lord of hosts himself. And the only way to be preserved from that day of the Lord is by turning to this Lord. That's the way of escape. See that's the amazing thing. That the one who is promising this judgment. The very judge himself is the one who becomes the deliverer from the judgment. And then yet... That's where we get to this sort of startling verse. Startling in the way that it sort of makes this division between, as Malachi has already hinted at in verse number 18, this idea that the wicked and the righteous will be divided. He sort of leans into that notion a little bit more in verse number two of chapter four. Because in that same day that he's already been referring to, when the proud and the, and the, the prideful and the wicked are burnt up like straw, Here he says the humble are made whole. Notice verse 2 of chapter 4. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Here the startling uh, sort of conclusion that we come to is that this day of the Lord that he's been talking about has very different experiences. The proud and the wicked. They're going to see that day. Experience that day as nothing but encroaching fire. That blisters and burns all of their badges of success. All of these things that they have come to cling to. As things that they can stand on. It will be burned up and snuffed out with nothing but ash left. However, as he says here. Those who fear the Lord as he has referred to, as the Old Testament refers to, that fear is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord especially, they have this very different experience. It's not a day of burning and wrath and fear. It's a day, as he says, of healing that emanates out of the wings which cover, that outstretched wings of the Lord's mercy that cover the earth in righteousness. And here you can see this amazing picture that he's painting. That those who have feared and put their faith and entrusted their lives in humility to this Lord of all things. They are those who find the remedy from this day of the Lord in the Lord himself. And as that son of righteousness, that great name of the Messiah here dawns, so too will dawn a new creation. And I love the picture he paints. Unto you that fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. There's the picture here of this sort of first light of spring after a very long and dark winter. And that light is felt with all of its healing capacity. That light starts to melt all of those things that have been frozen for months. And they've become almost dead. They appear as they are, dead. And that light though melts away all of that frost. And it brings now warmth to what was frozen and life to what was dead. And here even that imagery of calves of the stall that as they say, as he says they go forth and grow up. Or actually they spring or they frolic out of their stalls. Because spring has come. There's life again. There's life and there's hope. And there's this new dawn. So here those who are fearing the Lord of hosts. This Lord of all things. They come into this day. This day that is coming. They are not fearing. But they as he says here are frolicking. Quite different than panicking. And such Is the hope, and I think the message of the gospel. And if I can say this even too, it's the revelation that has been there throughout all of Scripture. It's the revelation of the way in which man is rescued from that great and dreadful day that is coming. It's the revelation of the way in which man can avoid the curse. Again, as he says at the end, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. You see, the revelation of scripture from Genesis to the book of Revelation has been this revealing, this peeling back of the curtain of the way in which sinful man can, can escape having this final word of the Old Testament be their final word. The last words of Your life story doesn't have to be a curse. Because thanks be to God, this Old Testament, which is 39 books, is not the only part of God's revelation to man. There's another testament. There's a whole another book and a whole another volume of God's revelation. And what's the amazing sort of, uh, sort of focal point? It's the whole focal point of the whole Bible. What's the amazing focal point of this other testament, the New Testament? Well, it's precisely the fact that there's one who has come to take the curse on your behalf. Galatians chapter 3. That wonderful verse Of Paul's letter to those churches at Galatia. And he says that incredible line. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. So this message of Malachi, which seems so dismal and dooming, is actually just the prelude to what would be the message of deliverance. That those who fear the Lord can have hope. Precisely why? Because there is one who is coming who would take away that curse. And in him, in Jesus, those who... Who fear him. Those who have their faith in him. They can approach this day not with trembling. But again as with frolicking. With great joy. Because this Lord is coming. So this day then. For the faithful, for those who fear this Lord, this day is not one to wring our hands over. In fact, we can pray as the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 22 even so, come, Lord Jesus. Because, yes, there's a judgment that's coming, but thanks be to God. He's made a way to escape it. He's made a way for us to avoid this coming dreadful day of the Lord. How? By taking that judgment on himself. This is the good news. It's the good news of the curse being taken by the judge himself. And now we who are the Lord's can say amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. Let us pray.